Hey, Micah. Hey, Eva. How you doing? Oh, uh, I'm doing all right. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Where are you yeah. right now? I am hunkered down in my closet, trying to get some good recording here. So I'm, uh, yeah, kind of caved in. Yeah, I see that. We're on Zoom <laughs> with each other, so I can see you. <laughs> yeah. What What about you? Um, well, if you can see, I've got this this sheet over me. I finally figured out how to make it so that there's actually a roof, so it's not covering my face. Um, it's being held up by recycled boxes, pillows, and my couch. This is the uh, the first ever TMI Fort party. Yeah, it is. <laughs> We're in the Fort Studios. Good to do in this uh, this 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 time of the world. Yeah, I can't wait to be back in a studio with you. Yeah, me too. But for now, here we are. And today is May 1st, 2020, and we're sharing a bonus episode to celebrate the online release of Vicarious Resilience, our short documentary. And I'm really excited about it. Um, We've been waiting for a long time to get this film out to the world. Um, The film follows three Kingston residents who were participants in a TMI Project storytelling workshop at the Mental Health Association in Ulster County. If you hear us talk about MHA, that's what that stands for. And we follow them as they go through the workshop experience, face some of the stories that they're afraid to share with even one person, find the courage to write about those experiences, share them with a smaller group, and then step on stage and share those stories with hundreds of people in the audience. It was a really wonderful experience to go through with this particular group. The documentary was shot by North Guild Films and premiered at the Woodstock Film Festival in 2018. And as of today, you can see the film at tmiproject.org slash vicarious resilience. And all of our 10-week workshops culminate in a live performance. And there were actually 10 people who went through it back in 2016. But because there's a short documentary, emphasis on short, we couldn't feature everybody, although that would have been nice. So this bonus episode is our chance to show off all of the stories that came out of the workshop. It's the whole performance, the whole banana. The whole banana. So we're excited to give you the opportunity to see what it feels like to actually step inside the theater and watch an entire TMI project performance from beginning to end. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Or I guess you don't have to sit back and relax. You can actually clean out the garage or whatever you, whatever your preferred parallel podcast listening activity might be. <laughs> True. I want to tell my story, but I don't think I know what my story is. It's been hard for me to process what's happened in my life. I've kept it all in. For example, I've hardly cried in my life. I just go about my business and never process the challenges I've lived through. Right now, I can't see my story through my stuff. My stuff owns me. Oh dear, it's kind of hard to talk about. It's a burden to have my home filled with stuff I can't really breathe there. I feel diminished. I feel it's more powerful than me. I don't focus on my story, my life, my history, 
and I don't focus on my stuff. I have tunnel vision, so I don't have to see all that's around me. I have so much shame, hate, and anger at myself because of it. Growing up, I feel like an orphan. My parents are depression people. They don't have anything. We're an immigrant family living in Providence, Rhode Island, and aren't hooked in to the American way of life where you have to have things. My parents have a mom and pop store, and all they do is work. They find it hard to show their love. I suspect it's the way they grew up, too. We live very modestly. Our two-bedroom apartment is sparse. We barely have any furniture. My brother and I share a room. I don't have anything. No clothes, no toys. Our parents spend money only on food and rent. At 11 years old, I ask my mother if I am an orphan. It's my way of saying she's coming up short as a mother. But it doesn't change anything. Now I'm the opposite of what I grew up with. Stuff is all around me. It's everywhere. I am and everywhere I go. I freed up a couple of chairs this week so I can have a place to sit. I don't cast my eyes on the messy parts of my home. I just go to my little stops, my cleared stations. The clutter problem starts after I leave my marriage of 27 years. I move to a one-bedroom apartment, and I don't unpack for six months. I don't even get a bed. I sleep on the floor in the living room for six months. I have nothing. I start going to yard sales. I buy myself furniture and even get clothes. But then I move to a two-bedroom apartment. The boxes stay stacked up against the wall, and I just bring more stuff in. I end up hiring two professional organizers. I'm one of their best customers. <laughs> the, or the organizers do their job, and then I go to more yard sales. <laughs> I, have, I have a hard time organizing on my own. Last night, I spilled a bottle of over-the-counter medicine. I had to go out, and so I left it there. Sometimes it seems like there is no time to clean up. Just this morning, I needed my winter gloves, and they were right where I left them last winter, <laughs> on a hallway table in a plastic bag. They should have been put away someplace. I still get the feeling that I'm an orphan. I don't have my friends visit me. I don't travel, because I don't want to leave until I tidy up. I don't cook for myself. This past month, the fridge has been too cluttered to even deal with food. All I take is an apple or a pear, because it's easy to deal with. But to take out some turnips with greens on them, it's already too much for me, because my countertop is cluttered. So I've just been ignoring my refrigerator. My clutter is holding me back from the most basic things. I want to know what my story is. I want to be clear about that. And I want to be clear of the clutter. I want to adopt myself and mother myself. 
I want to have the love and caring of friends and my own compassion. I'm good about loving people and showing empathy and compassion for others. Now I need it for myself. Growing up, I'm taught that a man is the head of the home, and a woman's primary role is to take care of it, to cook, clean, and raise children. At home, I learned that it's okay to take the woman's role for granted. Even I, the littlest one in our family of six, don't have to be nice to mom if I don't want to. We are permitted to disregard her tireless efforts on our behalf. I'm six years old and awake in the middle of the night. The moon outside the window, just beside the bed, draws my attention. I'm feeling big feelings inside. In the darkness, I locate a piece of construction paper and some crayons. By the light of the moon, I try to capture what I see and feel. Does a rainbow convey hope? Colors at least do. I feel a sense of peace and possibility. I'm in control of my own personality, of how others treat me. I won't be unseen and disregarded like my mother. I'm in fifth grade and my world works. Even though I'm quiet, my teachers notice me. I'm a big fish in a small pond, the best at schoolwork and almost the best girl at sports after Kathy and Lisa. I sing, I act, and I play flute in the band. Our teacher, Mr. K, is the most popular one in the school. He calls the boys by their last name and the other girls by their fir first names, but I'm Hewitt, just like my two brothers who came before me. Compared to my brothers, I'm an angel. For the past year, my family has been going to a Pentecostal church, and I am a believer. I avoid sins like lying and swearing. It's not hard. I participate in Sunday school, Sunday morning service, Sunday evening service, and Wednesday evening prayer meeting. I learn all about the Bible and try to put it into practice, sincerely. Mr. K assigns me to a seat in the last row, next to Tommy Mangifico, who's a bit chubby. He knows I'll behave, be a good influence in the back of the classroom, where distance makes his authority more diffuse. When Tommy jumps and exclaims in the middle of class, Mr. K yells, Mangifico, placing blame where he knows it must lie. Little does he suspect that I just sunk my forefinger into Tommy's irresistibly chubby side. <laughs> In sixth grade, everything changes. I'm now at the combined middle school, a smaller fish in a bigger pond. My locker number is 667. My neighbor, Michelle, 666, finds the strange or scary things on or in her locker regularly. <laughs> At recess one day, I strike up the nerve to tell the vice principal that the combination on my locker doesn't always work. He proposes a wager. He says, 10 cents says, if we go to your locker right now, I can open it. So we do, with our onlookers. He wins the dime off me, but I don't mind. I feel a little bit proud and powerful to have bantered with and gotten attention from one of the people in charge. I don't stand out in middle school the way I did in elementary. I try out for the basketball team and only make second alternate. I try out for the band and am second to last chair in the flute section until I'm challenged and wind up in last chair. 
I don't know anyone and start to get average grades. Kristen, my friend from across the street, says rude things about me in the hall to her friends. I'm sitting in homeroom class. The teacher calls me up to his desk. Again. What does he want this time? I'm not sure why he's been singling me out. I rise from my desk and walk to the front. My face feels hot. When I arrive, he speaks to me. His voice is quiet. The others can't hear. I'm trying to understand what's happening. I'm uncomfortable. Now his hands are on me. He's lifting me up off my feet in front of the whole class. I have no idea why he's doing this. My face feels even hotter. It must be beet red. I want to be seen, but not like this. I wonder, what am I doing wrong that's making him treat me this way? I thought I was in control of how I am perceived and treated. I want to distance myself from, from what exactly? What about me makes it possible for him to make me feel this way? I find myself back at my desk and the bell is ringing. Homeroom is over, relief. I stand and walk toward the open door to the hall. I'm eager to get out of this room, to leave my confusion behind, to enter the hall. I'm about to cross the threshold and the door is shut in front of me. Along with the students moving forward behind me, I am forced to stop, open the door, move into the hall, see who did this, that kid looking over his shoulder. Did he say something to me? My heart has a, my, he has a mean smile on his face. He's laughing with his friends. My heart is racing at full speed again. Something snaps inside. With no forethought, and for the first time in my life, I hear a bad word coming out of my mouth. The word comes out quiet and awkward. It feels funny on my tongue. Asshole. <laughs> I can't tell if he or anyone around hears this word come out of my mouth. With all the blood plumping through my veins so fast, my hearing isn't working properly. But I feel as if time stops, all sound and motion ceases, and the word asshole ricochets around the hallway, bouncing off lockers and in my brain. I don't tell anyone and know my parents don't know this happened, but my dad decides I'm becoming rebellious and sends me to a private Baptist school for the next five years. I go to a Christian college and just after I graduate, marry Chris, who at the time is preparing to be a pastor. I start working at a Christian organization. I'm 22 years old, a budding young accountant. I just passed the CPA exam, all four parts, which only 7% who take the test do. I've known for a while that I wanted to be in a respected profession. Even more clearly, I knew what I didn't want, to be unseen and taken for granted the way my mother was. I recently been named the supervisor of the accounting department over a few women in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. I'm serious and competent. My promotion means a much needed raise. I really need some new clothes and Chris helps me pick out a few things. One day, I'm in the office of Wesley Schrock, the lawyer and corporation counsel for our organization. I've come to discuss something work-related and serious, accountant to lawyer. I'm wearing a new professional black dress, and it's just a little bit tighter and shorter than usual, and over it, a checkered jacket cut to a woman's shape. I'm standing in front of his imposing desk. He lowers his glasses, looks me up and down, slowly and deliberately, and says, you look great today. I don't know what to say. I leave as quickly as I can. I feel confused. I think I shouldn't have worn this. I'm never going to his office alone again. I'm ashamed and nervous and offended for feeling nervous. I feel icky and less than. Why did that happen? 
How could he reduce me to these feelings so quickly? Suddenly, I'm no longer a competent and effective professional. I'm only useful for something happening in his head. I still can't figure out what was happening in sixth grade when my homeroom teacher picked me up. But now I'm having the same feeling all over again. I want to distance myself. And now I can name from what. I don't want to identify as a woman if it means my sense of safety and control can be so easily stolen from me. The insight I came to in the middle of the night when I was six was only half true. I do have power to shape my own life and be who I want to be. But it's an illusion to believe that I'm in control of how others see and treat me. It's difficult to let go of this illusion. I blame myself or chalk these experiences up to specific circumstances I can't quite understand, mysterious aberrations. For many years, I don't consider that how I was treated was not my fault, that I was just the wrong woman at the right time for men who didn't happen to exempt me from a sexist system. I now see that distancing myself from my identity as a woman doesn't make me immune from being treated as less than. Looking back, I can see that I quietly carry the conviction that women are, in fact, equal to men, contrary to what I was taught. And now I'm learning to embrace being a woman as a central part of my identity and as a basis for working with others to end inequality. A letter to my grandmother. Dear Gigi, you were 60 years old when I was born, and you were a big part of my life. You died 20 years ago at the age of 96. So much has happened since then that I wish you could have witnessed. When you were alive, I was home a lot and didn't go out much. You didn't think I'd get better and you thought my problem was behavioral. I had all sorts of books about schizophrenia, but you didn't read them because you didn't believe it. I wish you understood my illness better. But when I was, but when I was housebound, you thought I was misbehaving, but I knew it was something else. Still, you always treated me respectfully. Remember the time we were in New Paltz, and you trusted me to go get ice cream when mom was too protective and didn't want to challenge me so much. I like that you treated me like I was normal, but I do wish you understood that I was not acting out. I couldn't help it. I know that mental illness in others had already taken a toll on your life. You lost one of your sons, my uncle, to suicide. A short while after that, your other son died because he wouldn't stick to a diet. I remember how sad you were when they died. I remember you cried like how my father cried when he found out I had mental illness. He didn't cry in front of me, but mom told me he had cried. I'm not sure why he cried. It's not like I died. I still had my whole life in front of me. 
Since then, I've become so much more independent. You got to see some of that. I'm glad you were alive when I got my own apartment. I was glad for that. I had no roommate and no program to speak of. You see me you'd see me on the weekends because I'd come back to my parents' house. So much more has happened since you passed. I wish you could have been here for all of it. I got my master's degree in mathematics. MHA had a party for me when I got my degree. <laughs> we had great food, pigs in a blanket, and a, and a huge chocolate cake. All my friends were there. My family took me out to dinner with my professor at Bacchus in Newports after my thesis defense. These days, I live on St. James, a nice broad street with lots of trees. I live in an apartment with big rooms, and I have good, uh, and I have good neighbors. It's a good neighborhood. I'm very busy during the week, going to MHA and pros. I have a compere volunteer whom I do things with on the weekends. I'm very involved. Least recently, I lost a good friend to cancer. She was part of my art classes. I don't do hospice on her behalf because mom had hospice too. Longer weekends are hard for me like holidays. If you were here, Gigi, I'd be spending holidays with you, and long weekends wouldn't be so lonely. Sometimes on holidays, I visit Irene and Kevin and their kids, and it's nice. Kevin has always been good to me. It seems to me that he and my sister have this habit of playing good cop, bad cop. <laughs> they alternate roles. I'm thinking it would go back to my bad habits if something were to happen to either of them. You know, screaming and such, saying, ah. I remember their early days. My mother was alive then. Gigi, I wonder what you would say about my latest mental, i.e. psychic, discoveries. You didn't get to witness them. Earlier today, I had an ESP experience with a cartoon character. The voice in my head was like Donald Duck or Mickey Mouse. I could picture them standing next to me or maybe dancing as in that famous scene from Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. <laughs> I confess, I don't visualize image well, so this was probably all but an auditory hallucination. My delusions and hallucinations may have started when my best friend told me he was from Mars. He tells me to look carefully at his head. I see the faint outlines of an antenna. He tells me he owns several large companies. About a month later, I tell him point blank, you're a Martian. <laughs> he tells me he was only saying that. I still believe he's a Martian. <laughs> he tells me the rich entrepreneur part is true, though. <laughs> it's 
Still, I remember vividly the antenna. <laughs> Gigi, there are areas where I still struggle. I have a tendency to cry a lot. I find it hard to communicate. I have trouble reading. I get nervous and do things like spill the coffee. I get nervous about TMI. I'm afraid of being judged, judged, but I want to express myself. There are good things too. I like that people like me. I like that I'm getting more organized, I hope. <laughs> Gigi, I wish you could be around because I would have liked you, for you to see how, that I got better. Love, Morris. Six days after high school graduation, I'm 18 years old. I leave home to go to college. In the 38 years since moving out, I rarely spend more than an hour or two in my parents' home. Then four years ago, my sister's daughter comes to live with me. She is 11. It's not an easy time for either of us. I suspect that her coming to live with me will thrust me back into contact with my parents and that all the things I've left behind will come flooding back. They do. My niece is now 16 and having a hard time. So am I. One of the things that makes this time especially hard is that I have a bad habit of absorbing other people's emotions. Until they become too much to bear, then I cut those people out of my life or distance myself from them. But I can't cut my niece out of my life. And sometimes I confuse her emotions with mine because they bring me right back to my own difficult teen years. If you knew me back then, you might not have known I was having any kind of difficulty. That's because in order to survive the trauma in my family, I develop very effective coping mechanisms that belie the abuse, the heartbreak, and the violence. I dissociate. I go blank in the face of abuse whether it's directed at me or someone else. The great thing about that is that I rarely ever panic. When things get tough, I remain calm. When the car slides on the ice, I can calmly bring it back right. Also, I learn how to be good enough to get away with being very bad. <laughs> I'm good in school. I know all the answers. I raise my hand a lot. I love doing the work, and I love being recognized for being smart. I never want to get in trouble. But in fourth grade, Vicki Shear and I get in trouble for running around the classroom. The teacher calls us to the front where she spanks us with her hand on our behinds. Then in eighth grade, I'm caught skipping school with a bunch of other kids from my neighborhood. We are each given three licks from Mr. Stockham's paddle. After that, I never get in trouble again. Well, I don't get caught. In high school, I'm one of those kids that others love to hate. I have it pretty together, despite the trauma at home. I am having a good time. These are glory days. I am the model of good behavior in the classroom, 
except for one day in Mr. Rapp's class in 11th grade. I'm rolling joints in the back of the room to sell at lunch. <laughs> I'm not racing to find a word in the dictionary. The exercise is stupid. I lose the race. I take the dictionary up to the front of the room. I'm headed back to my seat. I hear my name booming out, McCoy. I turn, and the dictionary hits me in the chest, knocks the wind out of me. But mostly, I'm a good test taker. I have the leading role in the school musical. I hold school records in the 100 and 220. I run against the boys. I'm going to college. When I talk about it and say I will be a veterinarian, a lawyer, the president someday, my dad says I'll be pregnant and married before I get out of high school. I'll show him. But he's not watching. As long as no one complains about me, I'm home in time, and the police are not at the door, no one is watching. I do what I please. I get away with doing drugs, even stealing them from my mother, and buying and selling marijuana, and very memorably something that was being called crystal tea. I get away with having sex starting in eighth grade with my very pure and very sweet 16-year-old boyfriend in his white Chevy van. I enjoy drinking, stealing, then watering down the Seagram 7 my parents keep not very well hidden in the cupboard. I get away with all of this by living by a few simple rules. I take responsibility. In exchange for my freedom, I cook meals, do dishes, and when I turn 16, I take the laundry to the laundromat, buy groceries, and anything else that is needed. Both my parents have full-time jobs. They don't have time for this. My friends feel sorry for me, always having to do so much, but I see things differently. I have my own car, as long as I call to say I'll be late, I can stay out as long as I want. One of my most important rules is one crime at a time. <laughs> if you're drinking in the car, don't speed or run stop signs. You hear that? <laughs> if you're transporting a pound of weed, don't drink in the car. One crime at a time keeps me from getting caught. I care just enough to avoid detection. I can be as bad as I want to be, but don't get caught. Another rule is to not show anger toward my parents. Better to take it, whatever it might be, than to get angry. That could only end badly with physical consequences, or even worse, restriction of my many very important activities. Don't get caught. Care just enough to avoid detection. Be as bad as you want to be, but don't get caught. This all works out well enough. I survive my youth and even thrive, but it doesn't work out so well for me as an adult. I still have big trouble expressing anger. I can disengage from my feelings altogether. I remain good at pretending everything is okay. You want me with you if things get tough. I can stay calm under fire in a foxhole. It might come to that.
but a lifetime of pretending has a price. I have difficulty speaking up for myself. I never feel at home anywhere. Years of therapy had me convinced that I was okay anyway. I was going to be fine until my niece came to live with me. A teenager with a dead mother, an unknown father, and the kind of trauma that triggers all of mine. It's certainly not her fault. Her mother is dead, her father is unknown, and she was raised by the same dysfunctional parents who raised me, then handed off to me when adolescence hit. But when I feel caught in her emotional intensity, I feel myself rejecting her, being angry with her for all of the things she brings up in me. I find myself blaming her for how I respond to her anger and impatient with her emotional fragility. I find myself overwhelmed by my efforts once again to tolerate the intolerable, to change myself into someone who can be what I need to be for someone else until that no longer works. My solution in the past has been to mentally disengage or physically leave. This time though, I can't run away. One night at dinner, my sister asks everyone at the table, if you could, would you rather go back in time to visit the past or go forward and see what will happen to you in the future? Everyone quickly answers the same way. The past, they say. They would like to relive the best days of their lives, and they are optimistic enough about the future that they would like it to be a surprise. I, on the other hand, don't respond right away. Of course, I'd like to revisit amazing events from my life, finding out I got the lead in the school play, receiving the cheerleading scholarship, getting accepted to SUNY New Paltz, my first kiss. I would love to recapture those moments. But before I blurt out that I'd choose to go to the past, I stop myself and think for another minute. Maybe just having those memories is enough. I realize, as someone who battles depression, that it might be more beneficial to see into the future. It could reassure me that things will be okay. Bad days will happen, but that doesn't mean that life will be disappointing. I'd love to know for sure that I'll finish college, get a great job, get married and have kids. People tell me all the time, things will get better, things will get better, things will get better. But I want to know this for myself. Maybe this would help me combat my feelings of hopelessness. Growing up and into my early 20s, I'm always fairly confident about many aspects of my life. I'm great at making friends, I get good grades, and I see a bright future ahead of me as a high school social studies teacher. I have a long-term boyfriend who I assume I'll be with forever. Then, one night in 2013, everything changes. That night, my best friend and I meet at McDonald's for ice cream sundaes. At around 9.30, when we're done, I give her a hug, get into my Pathfinder, and drive around the restaurant to the exit. It's very dark. I have to make it right out of the parking lot to get home. I look at the red light and at the car in the distance coming in my direction. After thinking for a few seconds, I decide that I have time to make the turn ahead of the car. Apparently, the driver of the other car doesn't agree. I check my rearview mirror and notice the car pulling up right behind me. 
I begin to feel uneasy. Cautiously, I turn onto a road and the driver follows. I pick up speed and so does the driver. I stay on this main road for a little over a mile, keeping watch behind me, feeling very anxious. I slow down as I approach the road where I live and debate whether I should turn down it or keep driving. Nervously, I signal the turn and swiftly enter my road. The car behind me signals too, waits a few seconds, and then drives away. Holding back tears, I follow my long road. I arrive home and feel as if I can't leave the car. I look around the car to make sure I'm really alone and run into the house. I search around and there is no one downstairs. Slowly, I turn my head and look out a window and I see a man's face. Terrified, I duck down and hear my mom come downstairs. She sees me crouching in the corner and is concerned. I try to explain about the car and the face, but I'm out of breath and not making sense. My hallucination of the car and the face are all that I can think of, and I'm still convinced they're real. My mom assures me that everything is okay, but I can't comprehend. She leads me to the couch, and I continue to stay low, avoiding all windows. She tells me that she will go outside and make sure no one is around to make me feel safer. By the time she comes back in, I'm paralyzed, staring intensely out a window. I can't find words. All that come out are whimpers and screeches. Mom has never seen me like this. She gives me medicine to help me relax and fall asleep. My mind is not clear, but I begin to feel tired. I fall asleep, knowing that this night will change my life. I don't know how mentally ill I am or how much things have changed until a few days later when I get home from Michael's craft store. I've always loved making things for people, so I decide to try making this kind of beaded bracelet from a kit. On the box, there's two, a picture of two young girls making the bracelets. I spend two hours trying to make one, but I can't do it. I become so discouraged that I spiral into days of depression and hopelessness. I've never felt this way before. It gets worse. The process of losing capabilities and skills progresses. Within a few weeks, I can barely read or write. That June, I'm hospitalized for the first time for one week at Four Winds in Saratoga. It's my first time doing something like this, away from my family and friends, and it's scary. There's a girl there, around my age, who concerns me. She lashes out often, which is a big trigger for me. When I meet with the therapist assigned to me, I tell him about my worries. Well, try not to think about it, he says. Then you'll be fine. Really? That's his answer? I leave there without any diagnosis of anxiety. But my fears are not simply things I can decide not to think about. If I could, why would I be in the hospital? A few weeks later, I begin an outpatient program at a different hospital. The first week is fine, but soon I begin to decline again. My antipsychotic medication has been switched three times in only a few weeks, and it has made me sicker. I begin to get worse than I have ever been, and the people running the program don't know what is wrong with me. When my mental state reaches its worst, my mom and dad go with me to see the main doctor. He asks my parents to leave the room and sits down. Is it boyfriend problems? He asks. I'm shocked and disgusted. That's the last day I attend the program. 
People who don't live with mental illness have a hard time understanding that it is not just something you can get over. It has so much to do with your brain. You can have treatments like medication therapy, which can help, but someone minimizing your experience or essentially telling you to get over it is offensive and frustrating. There are a few more hospitalizations, five in total. During the last one, in addition to feeling lonely, depressed, and constantly anxious, I'm also worried that I'm not calling my boyfriend enough to make him happy. I wish I didn't feel guilty for not being there enough for him. I go to bed each night in the hospital with thoughts racing through my head, never feeling happy with myself. I think about that line friends, family, doctors all keep telling me. It gets better, it gets better, it gets better. That Thanksgiving, that mantra finally becomes a reality. That's when I get the call that ends my three-and-a-half-year relationship. Instead of being sad about it, I feel a great sense of empowerment. In my heart, I know that it's time to focus on myself instead of going through my life people-pleasing. After doing well, I'm discharged from McLean Hospital with a newfound inspiration and confidence in myself. That's my last hospital stay. My experience inspires me to reevaluate my goals Previously, I had been an education major, but after being hospitalized and seeing a broad cornucopia of mental health issues, I decide that I'm destined to help people with mental illness, either as a therapist, social worker, or even speaking to educate about mental illness in young adults and empower those who suffer from it. I know how difficult the low points can be, but I also know how it feels to emerge with strength. Having hope is a crucial part of recovery, I have found hope, and now I want to give it to others. Walking. Shopping. Shopping. Walking. From Bergdorf Goodman on 57th Street and 5th Avenue, my favorite department store to Barney's on Madison and 61st Street, also my favorite department store. Is there really a store that's not my favorite? <laughs> I buy a Comme des Garçons dress, Gucci pants, Robert Clegerie shoes, a handbag, Prada, of course, some Chanel makeup. I then take the subway downtown. Oh my God, there are so many stores. I strut from store to store on Prince Street, Green Street, Wooster Street, Broadway, West Broadway, and boutiques on Grand and Mercer. I try on more stuff. I look in the mirror and I love what I see. I buy a cashmere sweater in black. Ah, I'll take the gray one too. <laughs> High heel shoes, wedge heels, and stiletto heels. Another handbag. I buy it all. It feels so good, so powerful to buy what I want when I want. I keep walking and shopping, carrying all the bags. It, it gives me a better workout than I get at the gym. It fills my time. It gives me purpose. It fills my void. I have a dis-ease. I'm addicted to shopping. I get high when I make a purchase, like a heroin high. Going up to the cashier, opening up my wallet, showing her I have 14 credit cards. If the platinum one doesn't go through, the gold one will. If the gold one doesn't go through, the silver one will. One of my cards will go through to make that purchase. I so desperately need to stay alive. 
I believe if I use my credit cards to live way above my means, to fill that void in my heart, I will be happy. Oh, the high lasts about 20 minutes. Then the credit card statements come in. I have 30K in debt. I have $7 to my name, four subway tokens I've stolen, and I'm out of credit. I can't pay my credit card bills. I can't pay my rent. I can't pay for food. I can't live. I have a dis-ease. I get a good job. I make a lot of money. I work like a dog at a fashion magazine where I get to wear all the stuff I buy. I pay off the debt over years, but I still have the dis-ease. It's another weekend off from work, time to occupy my time by shopping to fill that void. I'm not lonely because all the salespeople are my friends. This weekend, I will go to the Beyond Department at Bed Bath. I will walk to 66th Street to my favorite store looking for candles, pillows, curtains, rugs, maybe new towels. Oh, what the hell, throw in the white terry robe. But wait. I am walking from 66th Street and Broadway trying to get to 61st Street. I know this shop has wonderful curtains that I need. The only problem is my leg stops moving. I'm dragging it. I need to go. Leg, you need to go shopping. Why are you stopping? Why am I tripping over my foot? Why do I feel drunk? I feel like I'm paralyzed. Come on, leg. There's a sale. Come on, move, leg. But it doesn't. How can I get to that store in 61st Street? I go to see a neurologist at NYU Hospital. What stores are near NYU Hospital? <laughs> the doctor tells me I need an MRI of my brain. What does my brain have to do with my leg? I wonder if there's any sales going on near NYU. After the MRI, I meet the doctor in his office. He has an x-ray of my brain all lit up. Wow, that's my brain. See the gray shading within your brain? You have multiple sclerosis. Never heard of it. I keep thinking it was the Jerry Lewis telethon disease and I would be wearing my spike heels sitting in a wheelchair. He starts to explain to me what the disease is. I completely go blank. I leave the hospital with my new disease and I call my boss because her father had multiple sclerosis and I ask her, how bad is it? She starts to cry. I call my husband, he wants to come and see me. I say, no, I know what I need to do to feel better after being diagnosed with some disease that I've never heard of that apparently is gonna make me a quadriplegic and unable to shop. I find a taxi, I tell the cab driver, Fifth Avenue and 57th Street, I go back to my favorite department store. I walk in like I'm the Queen of England with disposable income and a new disease and I buy a $3,500 handbag. Today my legs are barely moving, but I need a fix. I look online to see where should I shop, knowing I have left less steps with my new disease, conserving my steps. Shopping online never works. It's not the immediate high. Usually I get the wrong size or the wrong color or it's itchy. I spend more money on shipping goods back and forth my physical therapist made a great suggestion. When the muscles in my legs fatigue, which is about every 10 minutes, I should try on shoes. I now own 30 pair of shoes, all flats, <laughs> that I don't need. How can I do all the stores that I used to frequent? 
Okay, today's my birthday. My legs feel like they have 500 pound weights on them. I can't possibly walk shop to shop. I will not be frustrated on my birthday. I hire a car service to drive me from store to store. I start at a new store on Crosby Street. I spend two hours trying on everything in the store. Nothing fits. Nothing looks good. Nothing makes me happy. Nothing helps my legs feel better. Nothing helps my balance. Nothing. Not the back jumpsuit, not the cashmere poncho, not the shimmering dress. Nothing works. I get in the car service and I go to a shop on Wooster Street. I try on a jacket, a tank top, and leggings. Nothing works. Okay, let me try one more store in Grand and Mercer. I try on a coat, on a pair of shoes, and then boots, no heels, can't do heels, boring, I want nothing. I get in the car and I ask the driver to take me to see my friends who are waiting for me to celebrate my birthday at a jazz club. I show up with no shopping bags, but I show up to see people who love me, who fill my void and help me dance. And it's better than shopping. My new disease has cured my old disease. I'm five years old and the doorbell rings. It's a kid from school and his mom. Our mothers are towering above us, chatting with each other. Without taking his eyes off me, this kid wraps one arm around his mother's thigh and swings himself around and through her legs, emerging between them and attempts to tug his, tuck his head into her vagina. <laughs> Only her polyester slacks prevent total immersion. <laughs> His mom doesn't flinch, just keeps talking. Now, I don't like this kid, but I know a good idea when I see one. <laughs> Wrapped around mama, it looks like heaven. The next day, my mom is at the door again, talking to a neighbor. Her legs are planted and spread slightly, and I seize my opportunity, moving from behind and grabbing onto both of her meaty mom thighs. I'm just going for it. <laughs> so fast, she grabs me and yanks me out of there, hard, holding me at arm's length and squinting at me like she's never seen me before, like I'm a new species. What are you doing? <laughs> Suddenly, I don't know what I'm doing. I feel as if something obscene has transpired between us, and I am solely responsible for this grave transgression. My mother is from Phoenix City, Alabama, and I grew up spending summers there. It's heaven to me because it's where Granny lives, and I love my Granny. We watch soap operas and eat Alabama scramble dogs at the 14th Street Grill. That's orange chili spooned over a bun with chopped up red hot dog, onion, yellow mustard, and oyster crackers. All served, <laughs> all served with a glass bottle of ice cold Coca-Cola. We wander, we wander malls and public swimming pools, aimless and listless like 19th century aristocrats, Proust and his grandma strolling the promenade. Even as a little girl, I'm obsessed with story, with narrative and history. 
I sit perched on porches, snapping pole beans into metal mixing bowls, listening to my granny and her sisters trade stories back and forth of drug-addled cousins who go mad and drown themselves or shoot themselves in the backyard, an aunt who is a child in the mind, and poor Uncle Jimmy, shot dead in a juke joint. In 1966, my handsome, hard-drinking, Florida cracker father, Private Albert D. Downs, rolls into town and my mother leaves with him, shedding all that tragedy as if it never happened. My mother and father flee their legacies of poverty and despair, intent on building something new and better, but they have demons. My father's an alcoholic. He leaves for work at seven every morning in his home before five. By six, he's shit-faced, belligerent, and often cruel. Sometimes he's passed out, face down, spread eagle on the kitchen floor. The older I get, the more he can't stand me, my teen rebellion. My mother hides her drinking in the bedroom, and I grow up wandering the house, not knowing there's anything better out there. In 2000, when I'm 27 years old, my father dies. We learn he shielded us and the world from the worst of my mother's behavior. Her drinking moves from the shadows of her room, and we start to get calls from her employer, concerned friends, state troopers. We learn that my mother, when she drinks, likes to handle loaded weapons. My sister and I try to explain to various police officers, addiction counselors, and rehab intake specialists that my mother brings those loaded guns in the car as she drives around town before passing out in McDonald's parking lots or smashed into light poles. Nobody pays as much mind because she looks old and harmless, and in a pinch, she can still summon those southern charms. I live in fear that in a blackout, she'll kill a police officer who tries to help her or take out a whole family in her car. My therapist says I'm not responsible for that. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard for me to accept that my desire to avert sure disaster is just a remnant of my ACOA syndrome and not basic math. In 2003, I meet a sweet and handsome classical cellist named Marlon. He treats me not like a self-destructive floozy, which I am, <laughs> but a secret princess, like the funniest, smartest princess you've ever met. I can't understand Marlon or why, for the first time in my life, I am sexually attracted to a man who is kind to me. For a few months, I'm convinced he's a child molester. <laughs> but gradually, I get used to it. Happiness. In 2006, we marry in a Berkshire's country wedding. My mother shows up with two shiners, both eyes black and blue. She tells half the guests she walked into a door, and the other half she was in a car accident. I don't even care. A year or so after marrying, Marlon and I visit my family in Florida. My mother always insists we stay with her. She's fall down drunk when we arrive and spends most of our visit hiding in her bedroom to avoid us, but still we stay with her. Marla wants to know why we can't stay at the fun house, my sister's. Her McMansion is bright, full of love and TV and junk food. But my mother and her unhappiness make up a force field I am drawn to, like a super magnet. I have never been able to tell her feelings from my own, and I can't say no. Tonight, she's on the couch, looking miserable, bathed in a yellow light from the seafoam green lamp on the table, reclining like a pasha in her cream-colored velour robe. Why do you make me stay here when you're obviously not happy to see me? She doesn't answer, 
just rolls her eyes. Usually this makes me feel invisible, but tonight something snaps. Tonight will be the night that I refuse to retreat, that I draw the lines of myself indelibly right here in this room. Of course, it's years in the making, but in my memory it happens all at once, like a freak tsunami. I tried out every crime one by one, and I surprised myself with what comes out of my mouth. I tried to kill myself when I was 19, and you didn't even mention it to me. Unmoved, she arranges her face to look placid, serene, as if I'm just painting her portrait. When those vicious bitches told me I was the worst cheerleader, you didn't comfort me. You were ashamed of me. What do you want me to say, she says, directing the question to the back of the couch. When I told you dad was an alcoholic and I was scared of him, you told me I was imagining things. You told your own child she was crazy. Am I really supposed to answer that question? You refused to walk me down the aisle at my wedding, and you didn't even bother to tell me when my cat died. Haley, I don't know what you want from me. It feels like the walls are closing in, like I have to escape now. So I run to the bedroom and throw open the door. Marlon's lying on his back, staring at the ceiling. We're leaving, I yell. Get back out there, he shouts. Okay, I shout back. <laughs> and I run back to the living room and resume shrieking at that inert velour mountain on the couch. <laughs> over and over, I demand answers to the riddle of her coldness, determined to get to the bottom of it. And slowly, it ceases to matter that she won't answer. I'm screaming for myself now. Finally, when I'm exhausted, throat hoarse, disgusted with her and myself, she turns to face me. She looks me in the eyes for the first time all night. She looks sad. Haley, she says, I can't do more than this. I can't do more than this. It kind of sounds the same, but actually it's the answer I'm looking for. I've been asking her to reach down deep and find the lost maternal figure, my protector, raise her from the dead, and put her on trial for desertion. But this is my mother. She never deserted me. She was never there. And maybe it's not that she didn't want to. Maybe she did, but she couldn't. She can't, because she isn't. It's the truest thing she ever said. My mother was my first love, and I loved her blindly. I didn't receive the love I gave in return, not really. And it was excruciating, a primal mystery I spent most of my life trying to solve until that night. And I'm grateful for that moment of clarity in her because it finally called off the search for me. Thank you. A couple of years ago, I'm hired regularly for on-site contract work in pharmaceutical advertising in offices that are eerily clinical and similar to hospital rooms. I go to the offices buttoned up in my dress pants and Oxford shirt and blazer. I take my lip piercing out and move in a careful, practiced motion so that my tattooed wrists don't peek out. I speak in a strict and well-practiced, cordial, conversational manner. I have a certain routine, a way to arrange the bits and baubles at the desk, the cubicle, or office that has been prepared for me. I have a buttoned up poker face, then again, it is pharmaceutical advertising, so we all have some sort of a deflection shield about us. 
and that's as much as I can give. If I have to give more than that, well, there are routines for that too. If I'm not immediately needed, or if I can escape for an hour or two, I do. Just to wander in the herd of people and soup of sounds that swish all over Manhattan. If I can't get away, I'll go and find an empty conference room, shut the door, and sit. Sometimes I'll do yoga, but other times I'll chant. I'll use up all my energy to get in front of, or at least to the side of, whatever spell of woohoo or blues wants to rob my attempt at sitting still and doing work. Book that conference room and kick off the heels. It's bendy omi time. They say the deeper you get into a yoga practice, the harder the harder it becomes, because the more stuff comes up. Be present, they say. But fuck that. My present is terrifying. Yoga brings it all out of me. The shakes, the hallucinations, the strong words, and seemingly impenetrable defenses. It's when I'm asked to leave my yoga teacher training program that I know something is really wrong. My ego is hurt. Me? Leave? Of all people? But that's when I know I need to get treatment. That's when I realize that no, not everyone walks around shielding their eyes because Sometimes the colors of roads, of buildings, mailboxes are so piercingly bright that people don't avert their eyes from TVs and billboards because they think that they're actually speaking to them. That people don't cry at the idea of going to work or having a simple social transaction, like saying hi to a friend in a grocery store. That everyone doesn't meticulously record, moment by moment, the transactions of the day because that's what they feel compelled to do. No. It's not normal to be like that. Not everyone is like that. In common speak, I'm bipolar. Before I treat it, there are many years of hiding and other defenses. A mania takes over and tells me that I'm too special to go to school, to go to work, to, to do anything that any normal person does. I spend years riding on trains, flipping languages, sleeping on couches, and sometimes the streets because I feel like it. It feels good. English is too heavy and too close to reality for me, so I assume the identity of a world traveler and I get lost in other cultures. There's no fucked up me associated with my German persona. I don't have to tell the story of who I am. I'm an American-speaking German. Isn't that sexy enough? And Spanish, that's my street language. I learned that because I want to. Who has time to pay the bills and honor social contracts? I'm too important. Nothing gets in the way of constructing this exotic identity and running. I run when I can't deal with shit and because I don't want to tell what I've done. I don't want to tell you that it scares the shit out of me to just be. I don't want to identify as me, a person who is bipolar. Well, I do, as of now, I do, I have to, because that's the true me. That's the truth of who I am. It scares the shit out of me just to admit that, and I am ashamed. I shake every time I have to admit that I have a mood disorder. I don't treat this mood disorder until I'm 32, and I only begin to treat it because I can't hide it from myself anymore. For months that year, I can't work. I'm sorry, dear client, I'm unavailable. It's an excuse I use when I'm knee-deep in the blues, wearing the same clothes for a week, not getting out of bed, not able to read or write or remember my friends' names. Surely you've heard what depression is like. 
It's an excuse that I use when I'm in the throes of exquisite mania and zooming through life, not sleeping for days on end, waking up in strange places, like that time I wake up in the train yard in Bologna, Italy, not knowing how I got there, or when I go to Fatima, Portugal, and I'm talking to the Virgin Mary while the masses of hundreds of praying, pious people are on their knees hoping to see what I've seen. I'm special. I get to do things that other people can't because they aren't chosen like I am. But then I get real about being bipolar. I start getting treatment on my own terms, and I want to treat it naturally, because if I'm going to treat, it has to be on my own terms. I want to feel everything. That's what yoga teaches you, to be with what is, just be. As long as we can agree, well, as long as I can agree that my moments aren't peaceful, that they are full of terror and twitches, and from time to time, voices and visions that aren't really there, I can agree to stick with it. I must have done something right, because now I have one year sane. I'm celebrating one full year of getting up, going to work, paying bills, and being a responsible citizen. I still can't believe that I haven't crashed, or that when things come up, I deal with them. Or that when I don't feel good, I go right to the doctor for some acupuncture, and shit, I can pay for it too. <laughs> That's how I get sane. I start talking about what is happening in my reality, as fractured or as up and down as it may be. And I'm honest about it. I'm honest with me. I'm not making shit up. I'm a survivor of mental illness, and I have one year sane. I laugh because I feel well. I laugh at the girl who needed to own the shit out of herself, sometimes from the upteenth floor with a view over Central Park or Herald Square. I laugh at the fact that I was trying to get straight while working for agencies that were trying to get into the heads of millions of consumer, consumers out there. When I, tell my, when I tell people that I'm well now, I feel I need to explain. Alcoholics get sober. They measure their sobriety in time. Smokers get smoke-free. They can breathe, taste, move better. Debtors pay off their cards and get debt-free. They say, I don't owe anything anymore. These are all the things that you get to say. So me, I got sane. <laughs> John, I asked my husband, what would you say if I told you I wanted to buzz my hair? I'd been toying with the idea of taking his hair clippers and buzzing it all off, but I don't know what he would think. I think he wants me to be girlier than I am. Physically, I'm female. No question about that. The only things that ever bothered me about my body are my breasts. I never wanted them. For those of you who don't have them, imagine two grapefruit hanging from your chest. As a child, I want to be a boy. My mother wants a girl and a best friend, and she tries to make me into both. She puts me in dresses, and I don't complain, but I come home covered in mud and get in trouble. I go to quilt shows and craft fairs, but I'd rather be anywhere else. I never say a word to her, though. I think this is what little girls are supposed to do. I never tell her that I feel different no matter what I do. I play the game. I never tell her I want to be a boy. I'm six years old. 
My friend Brian and I go around the playground at recess calling all the girls chicken and clucking at them. When I do play with my one female friend, Jenny, I refuse to play Barbie dolls. She gives me one for my seventh birthday. It ends up under the bed with its head ripped off. <laughs> that same year, I grab my camp counselor's t-shirt. I take mine off and put his on. He tells me little girls can't take their tops off in public. I don't know why. People think I'm confused, but I'm not confused. I just like what I like. I play sports with the boys, love Hot Wheels and little green army men, but also love stuffed animals. In seventh grade, I'm supposed to start wearing a bra. My mom makes me show her I have it on before I leave. Of course, during first period gym, I take it off. At the end of the week, on Friday, I come home with lots of smelly gym clothes and five clean bras. <laughs> there are other places where I don't quite fit. All of my friends growing up are Christian. My family never subscribes to any religious beliefs, but I want to be like my friends. I start tagging along to the Baptist church with them, but find their view of hell and damnation too confining. I'm 11 years old, and these repressive teachings make no sense to me. As I grow older, I experiment with being a typical woman, but it never fits. When a friend in college tries to do a makeover on me for a blind date, I almost freak out. I let her put the makeup on, but almost immediately wash it off. I hate how it feels. I also buy the occasional skirt and try to act more ladylike. It feels so strange that I stash the skirt in the back of the drawer. I don't even want to see them. I don't carry a purse. I even hate that word for some reason. <laughs> I shop for most of my clothes in the men's department. I hate chick flicks and would rather watch a football game. What does that make me? Anatomically, I'm female. Emotionally, I'm not. But I don't quite identify with men either. As I grow up, I discover that almost everything I feel about the world doesn't make sense to anyone else. By my early 20s, I come out as bisexual and discover pagan spirituality, which seems to make it even harder to come to terms with being a traditional woman. My mother deserts me right after I graduate high school, when I can no longer pretend to be the little girl that she wanted. At the age of 22, I make a half-hearted attempt to take my life. I am tired of people calling me weird, excluding me from activities, and making fun of me. I don't feel depressed so much as completely alone. After being released from the hospital, I see a psychiatrist and a psychologist for two years. One doctor tells me that I will never lead a normal life. Another labels my bisexuality as a maladaptive thinking process related to some mental illness that they decide I have, although they cannot decide which one. My diagnosis changes depending on which doctor is reading my file, but not talking to me. They're all trying to cure me, to make me normal. After two years in the system, I discover psychology's biggest secret. Most diagnoses are really a way to control people. My religion is labeled maladaptive. My sexuality is labeled maladaptive. My way of identifying my gender is labeled maladaptive. Everything about me is a disorder to them. Funny thing is, I don't feel like there's anything wrong with me. I feel like there's something wrong with the world that wants me to fit into a tiny box called normal. One day, two years after my initial suicide attempt and hospitalization, 
I give it all up. Stop seeing the therapist. I have my psychiatrist take me off the antidepressants and never go back. I decide that there is nothing wrong with me, and I move forward with my life. I throw off all the baggage that has been hindering me, people's judgments, my feelings of inferiority for not fitting in, and even the mental illness labels that are heaped upon me. I'm done with them all. After dropping out of college twice, I re-enroll in school. I major in psychology. I volunteer at a crisis helpline and talk others out of suicide. I enroll in graduate school, studying the effects of spirituality on mental health. I write my thesis on how pagan spirituality improves people's lives. Instead of being held down by my differences, I start to embrace them. I become more comfortable with who I am, and my long hair no longer feels like it fits. I start to think about shaving my head. I post on Facebook saying I've been considering doing this to see what people think. I am a little scared about how it will look. My friend Pauline chimes in, said she did it for a few years and loved it. And she was someone I always considered to be a girly girl. If she can do it, so can I. I don't care what my husband thinks. I pull out the clippers from under the sink, get the one-inch guide, I don't want it gone completely, and take it to my head. I smile in the mirror as the hair falls to the sink and the floor. I post before and after pictures on Facebook. People love it. I love it. I've spent years thinking about gender identity, and I've decided that gender is a social construct used to keep people in line. There are certain things that men are supposed to do, and certain things that women are supposed to do. But gender is much more complicated than biology. I'm not transgender. I don't really identify as female, but I don't exactly identify as male either. Frankly, I'm just me. Why do I need to put a label on it? I know that just like when I was little, I'm not confused. I just like what I like. <laughs> Thank you to our readers, Barbara Stemke, Susan Grove, Morris Bassick, Kate McCoy, Allie Quinn, Beth Broom, Haley Downs, who also produced this podcast episode, Anastasia Wasco, and Amber Hattigan. Our Director of External Affairs is Sarah DeRose, and our Operations Manager is Blake File. Our theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods, and Nate Brogan is our editor. This episode of TMI Project Podcast was produced in partnership with Radio Kingston, with production assistance from Ida Hakla, Marlon Barry, we hope listening to these stories helped you tap into some of your own vicarious resilience. We know you're likely tuning in during a challenging time, as all of us are navigating this pandemic together. At TMI Project, we believe writing and storytelling are powerful tools for building resilience and getting through even the darkest of times. You've just listened to 10 storytellers demonstrate that over and over again. For that reason, we've developed many new virtual offerings so that you can write and share your story safely from a distance and at the same time stay deeply connected. Please check out our offerings and register for our workshops and events at tmiproject.org. We want to stay connected to you.
Stay tuned for the next series of the TMI Project podcast, Black Stories Matter, beginning July 1st. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And like so many other organizations, TMI Project has had to cancel all of our in-person programming. Please visit us online to see all of our new virtual offerings. During this strange time of social distancing, we are more dedicated than ever to igniting human connection through true storytelling, but we really need your help to stay afloat. Please support the creation of radically true personal stories by becoming a sustaining donor at tmiproject.org.